So here we are. TNG at last. I know some of you have been looking forward to this. I know at least one person has been looking forward to this. I, uh... <laughs> where to begin? Um, let's give you a little behind the scenes. That's where I usually like to start with uh, when it comes to movie or, you know, well, anything, really. The behind-the-scenes perspective is usually the first place I like to start when it comes to my ruminations. But we're going to start with a little bit of behind-the-scenes from my perspective, just to vary things up a little bit. So, on average, you know, i got my big old notebook here, right? Big old notebook o notes a few hundred pages of notes here over the last year or so. Uh, a lot of Babylon 5 stuff here. Looks like Pillars of Eternity is where I started off this one at. Anyway, so to give you a little bit of perspective, an average rumination is about one page. Here, I'll give you an example right here. Yep, one page right here for, uh, well, that's a Babylon 5 rumination. That's a bad example. But you get the idea. On average, most of my ruminations take one page of notes. I have three on Encounter at Farpoint. I don't know if this is going to be a trend, so don't get used to super long episodes or whatever, but as ever, I have no minimum or maximum time in mind when it comes to my ruminations. That's not the point. If I wanted to do that, I'd do a review and I'd summarize everything in a minute. Um, <laughs> this is all about me talking and discussing about the matter with you, and I have a weird feeling that some of you might be joining me for the first time with regards to the TNT rumination, so let me just go ahead and start with saying welcome. Um, the way I try to do these, the way I've always done these, ever since the beginning, even before this was actually my job, was I sit down and I, you know, I have my notes and I think about what I want to say and what I feel is worth discussing, what I have something to talk about. And in my mentality, the way I do it is as if there's someone actually sitting or standing right over there as I'm staring at the camera right now. Because I've done this kind of stuff for most of my life, ever since I was in Oh, gosh, at least fifth grade, uh, probably earlier than that, actually, now that I think about fourth grade, would have been the first time I started having friends who were really into things like Star Trek and video games. So this is the kind of thing I'm very used to, just sitting and chatting and discussing about this stuff. Now, obviously, this isn't a true discussion. I do read your guys' comments, but obviously this isn't a direct back and forth. But that's the same mentality I have when I go into it. I am talking with you about what I feel is worth talking about, right? Hence ruminations rather than you know a review or an analysis I do hope you find this run through the TNG series enjoyable I am actually really nervous if I'm being completely honest I have been see part of the reason I'm nervous is the same reason I was nervous when it came to the Lord of the Rings exology because there's a lot of behind-the-scenes material however unlike the Lord of the Rings exology a lot of the material here is contradictory I, as I mentioned, I went ahead and watched Chaos in the Bridge. I recommend it for anybody who's interested in some behind-the-scenes material from basically TNG's inception up until about Season 3 of TNG is what Chaos in the Bridge covers. And right towards the beginning, one of the things they did was they showed several interviews from several different people who were all asked the same question, and each of them give wildly different answers. And that's the problem right there. I know I already prefaced this yesterday, but on the off chance you didn't hear me, let me say this again. There's a lot of contradictory information when it comes to interviews and behind-the-scenes information when it comes to early TNG. It doesn't really start codifying until about Season 3 and Season 4 when people started taking more careful notes and people, frankly, started agreeing with each other more. So if you've heard something that disagrees with this or you disagree with this, that's fine. 
I'm just stating what I either have at least a modicum of belief is actually true, or the only information I have at my disposal that I feel that I can repeat. So, fair warning on that. Now, the next thing I want to talk about is something that's probably going to make everyone watching this run away. And I'm just going to drop the bombshell here. I don't think Season 1 is that bad. Now, I'm going to wait a moment, because on the off chance that that is enough for you to stop watching, then, you know, you are welcome to do so. Now that I've dropped that bombshell, let me explain a little bit. As I've talked about before, a little over four years ago, it's four years and a few months now, I sat down and started rewatching TNG, and I got a fairly large way through Season 1. I, I actually sat down and looked at the Season 1 list, and I got all the way up to uh, Conspiracy, which is quite a ways into Season 1. And I was weirded out by it. See, here's the thing. I'm not trying to be all hipster. Uh, I'm not trying to be a victim of Pendulum Effect. Because, obviously, everyone ever always says, you know, Season 1 of TNG is crap. I've heard that as recently as a few days ago when it came up in idle conversation while we were streaming Metroid, for God's sakes. You know, this is, this is such a common, prolific thought process in Star Trek fans that I was the exact same way. I was. Up until that point, four years ago, when I started rewatching the show, I had the exact same mentality. Season 1 sucks. You know, get on to the good stuff. There's a few good episodes, you know, in like Season 2 and whatnot, but Season 1's just garbage. So then I started rewatching it, and I was shocked because I was enjoying it. Now, there are bad parts, of course, and I mean, let's say, let's say we got Encounter at Farpoint, Naked Now, Justice, uh, Code of Honor, you know, spam, bam, 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 just, ugh. But then there's the other 20-odd episodes, which are nowhere near that bad. And rewatching this episode, I was reminded of that, of that mentality very clearly. I've been looking forward to going through TNG with what I call analysis mode on for quite some time. It's, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's when I sit down and I really try to pay attention to nuance or subtlety or pieces of information or try to, you know, look, look at this and, okay, well, he did this, but in, in 15 episodes or now he's going to do this, you know. Basically trying to analyze the work as, uh, as carefully as I can. And I was like, well, that's good. Well, this is, this is a good performance. Well, this is actually some decent exposition. And so, Going through it, I realized, that the, and this is just a theory, but I realized the reason that I think I tend to remember Season 1 is bad is the same reason I tend to th remember Encounter at Farpoint is bad, and I'm sure most other people do as well. Because we don't remember the, the good heartwarming scenes with Picard and with Crusher. We don't remember the chemistry that is on display between uh, Data and Riker or Geordi and Crusher. We don't remember the exposition that was woven nicely into dialogue. We don't remember the, the character building moments. Uh, we don't remember any of the good stuff of the episode. We remember the bad. And there is bad. I'm not trying to say that. That would be ridiculous. We remember, you know, five minutes of the Enterprise docking with itself, or however long it was. I forget the exact time. I meant to time it, but I decided it wasn't that relevant. And here I am referencing it. You know, we remember loneliness. Terrible loneliness. You know, that's the stuff we remember. We don't remember the good. And I feel it's the same way with Season 1. Because if you go through Season 1... What are you thinking right now? An honest question, and I'd love to hear your comment. I would love to see everyone's comments on this in the in the description or in the in the comments below. Because I have a feeling everyone, when you think of season one, thinks of the same damn stuff I do: Counter at Farpoint, Naked Now, Justice, Code of Honor. 
I mean, there are other bad, you know, brown spots here and now through season one, but those are really just the stinkers, in my opinion. And usually when I ask other people in person when we're discussing Star Trek, those are the episodes that come to people's mind, just immediately. It's like, oh, God, ugh. Code of Honor might even be a lamentation, and for those of you who have been following me for a while, you know I've had, like, what, four lamentations ever in six years of doing this job? I've only had four or so things that have been lamentation-worthy. But then we don't really remember the other episodes. The the episodes that were not great, certainly. None of the best of TNG is in Season 1, but they weren't bad. In fact... As a little bit of an exercise, I asked a few people, my step-parents and a couple of friends, what episodes they felt were the best stuff of early TNG. And I just, I left that ill-defined on purpose because I wanted them to fill in the blanks there, what they defined as our early TNG. Now, but for me, season one and season two is early TNG. And Measure of a Man is my favorite episode in season one and season two. I don't even have to think about that. Followed immediately by Q-Who, actually. So, bam, bam, you know. But what did other people come up with? And I, and a surprising number of them came up with some season one episodes, including Skin of Evil, actually, was one of them that was brought up immediately. And Data Lore was brought up immediately as well. And I find that interesting in its own right. And again, I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts on, you know, favorite episode of early TNG and whatnot. But I bring this all up because I am hopeful that this will be a different perspective on TNG. For me, definitely, but hopefully for some of you as well. Because again, I was surprised by this four years ago. You know, again, I'm not being like, oh, I always knew that season went. No, no, I was like, oh my god, I'm actually liking this. This is weird. And I had the exact same perspective today when I watched Encounter at Farpoint. I forgot how many good moments there are in this episode. It's not a great episode. And it does have some very bad elements. And honestly, the entire final act is frankly kind of crap, just as I'll talk about when we get there. But I forgot all the good parts. Just like I was just talking about. Let's talk about the making of TNG as a whole. Now, I know I kind of went into that a little bit. But I want to go into this because I think it's relevant for several of the elements of TNG and this episode in particular. So obviously, I've already done a rumination on Star Trek The Motion Picture. During that rumination, I went out of my way to not discuss the mess that went into the creation of that movie. And I'm not saying it's a bad movie. Please don't throw words into my mouth. I'm not saying Motion Picture is a bad movie. What I am saying is that the, the creation of that movie, the behind the scenes, was a nightmare. It was such a slog that I decided to not even cover it in detail because there was so much crap going on. Same thing with this. Same exact situation. It's so one-to-one -one of a parallel that my first gut reaction was that, and you're going to hate me for this, I know, Roddenberry is just that hard to work with. That was my first instinct. The surface uh, fact was that Roddenberry was heavily involved in both projects and both projects were a nightmare uh, with regards to budget, with regards to getting the right people on board, with regards to disagreements, with regards to even getting the show into syndication at all. Uh, speaking of which, this actually, it's another thing. CBS was like, yeah, we'll do a miniseries. And it's like, what? No, we can't do a miniseries. So they switched it over to first-run syndication. Now, first-run syndication is basically the back seat 
or I should say was. I don't even know if syndication even functions as a concept nowadays. So, but back in the 80s, you know, the era which I know television recently, well, 80s and 90s and early thousands, uh, first run syndication was the backseat stuff. It was the stuff that you sold more or less individually. They didn't get primetime slots. They weren't uh, f uh, showrunners. They weren't flagship shows. They were things that were just kind of sold piecemeal wherever and didn't get as much money in terms of how much they sold for because they weren't worth as much. And as a consequence, their budgets were almost universally low. Most first-run syndication shows are really, really cheap shows to produce. Like, uh, you know, shows that involve a bunch of actors in a house, for example. And that's pretty much the set. They've got the house, and on occasion they'll go out to the yard or something like that. And that's the set. It's really cheap to do, really cheap to rent, really cheap to record. All you need, basically need to do at that point is get in you know, the camera people, the lights people, and uh, some touch-ups with regards to props, and of course the actors, directors, writers, etc. And I, may, I know that sounds like a lot, but compared to a show like Star Trek... Remember, ILM actually did some work uh, with regards to this and did a lot of the early, uh, I don't want to say renders because that's actually the wrong word, um, the step before renders, the step before composite, and I can't actually think of the term, for forgive me, with regards to the effects for the Enterprise and some of the effects with you know the lasers and the bondage, all that stuff, a, a lot of the base effects and base design for the ship was originally done by ILM, which honestly I think showed at the time. Now granted, the final renders were done in-house, and of course a lot of this stuff was done uh, with actual models. They hadn't really gotten into CGI yet, but that's you know kind of the point here. It's expensive. It was a very expensive show, and yet, ironically, they were on a shoestring budget the entire time. TNG, TNG Season 1, was insanely cheap. The amount of money they produced this show for is kind of scary when you really sit back and look at it. It's like, how did they ever make that happen? How did they do that? Oh my god. I am in shock. Then, so... Getting back to my point, though. Uh, let's go ahead and talk about, well... Let's talk about what I think is the real reason why both Motion Picture and Encounter at Farpoint and early TNG in general were such a nightmare to craft. It's basically the same thing that I refer to in my video game concepts as bullet point syndrome. Hear me out. The idea is the people, the money people, and I use that term because it's such a large group of people, you know, all the individuals who actually make the decisions on a corporate level that then inform the decisions people have to make on a creative level, okay? So the money people sit down and say, well, uh, Star Trek has name brand recognition, right? So why don't we do something with that? And so they wanted to make, they wanted to do something new, something that had never been done before. And so they, saw a couple of other films, like 2001 Space Odyssey and Star Wars, back before it was called A New Hope, and they said, okay, we'll do the motion picture. We'll do Star Trek the motion picture. But they hadn't actually thought about what was required to do that, and so they jumped into a field they knew nothing about and had no idea how to accomplish it. And thus, the creation of Star Trek the motion picture was a mess. I'm not saying the film was a mess. I'm saying the behind-the-scenes was a mess. And I hate to keep repeating that, but I really hate it when people shove words in my mouth like that. Encounter at Farpoint. I talked about this just last week. Bringing a show back, having a new show in a pre-existing setting, 
which actually had contiguous continuity with the previous show. That's insane. That wasn't done. So many people, when they started working on The Next Generation, were like, no, this is, this is unfeasible. You can't do this. So many people said no. So many people were like, we can't do this. This is not going to happen. This is not... No. But they pushed for it anyways, and for several reasons, but the biggest one, of course, being Star Trek IV Voyage Home. And so they jumped into something that they had no idea what they were doing, and thus it was a mess behind the scenes. It also probably doesn't help that there was a lot of legal crap, and I'm just going to say it that way, going on at the time. Um, for those of you not aware, uh, the, the Paramount executives were originally just going to make Next Generation on their own. I actually find myself wondering what kind of a show that would be. I have no idea. Like, we, we have so little to speculate on. Gene Ronbury found out and said, no. No. And had to legally go after them because he still had some legal rights to the Star Trek name as the creator of the series, as creator of the franchise. And the compromise they came up with was, okay, Gene, you do the new Star Trek. Now, it's worth noting that he wasn't ready for this. He wasn't prepared for this. In fact, he, this is the, his health wasn't super bad yet. But remember, this is only a few years before he would eventually die from his health issues. He was still not doing well. And that's ignoring the fact that, you know, the alcohol and the drugs that he was on at the time. He, this is when he was taking uppers fairly regularly to try and maintain his focus on set, right? So, <laughs> this is not someone who, and, and again, no offense to Gene on this one. I know I've said I, I will freely bash the man if I feel the need to, but not here. I think this is someone who was basically being told, hey, we're taking your baby and we're making something of it. He's like, no, you can't, you can't do that. That's my baby. Okay, well, you do it. But I'm not ready. I wasn't, I wasn't prepared. I wasn't, I wasn't an issue. There was no impetus on my part to jump into this project. But now you gotta do it. Because otherwise they're just gonna do it without you. Okay. Let's do this then. In many ways, TNG also, and especially Encounter at Farpoint, I'll talk about this a little bit more later, uh, feels like it was Gene officially Re, I don't want to say rebranding Star Trek so much as changing the message behind it. The original Star Trek, of course, had its own message, but, you know, the wagon train to the stars thing, it's been called that many times for a reason. You know, it was kind of an adventure-y, action-y show. Uh, Gene himself flat out said, you know, I want a young, virile captain. You know, I, I want to be out there. I want a Bill out there. I want him to be out there and, and punching dudes and, and betting the women and all that fun stuff. And yes, there was also some elements of tolerance and support and, and uh, trying to have, you know, a black woman on the bridge. I know that sounds like nothing nowadays, but of course at the time that was a big deal. And so forth and so on. TNG, though, well, we've already done it. There's no, there's no frontier. At least the original intent by Gene was there's no frontier. We've done it. We've settled. Now we need to go ahead and show how we have become better from from the original series up to now, 80 years or so, I forget the exact number. We need to show how much humanity has evolved and improved in that time, and we are now the perfect people. Make of that what you will, but there is no denying that this was Gene's intent going into Next Generation, and it shows in many ways. Uh, he was very humanist. 
uh, Gene uh, was, Roddenberry was, he was very pushing for humanist idealistics and uh, mentalities, idealistics, ideals, excuse me, and mentalities with regards to what he was doing in general at the time. And he bought into the humanist ideas very much so. He was like, yeah, no, this, this is totally it. And um, <laughs> then some, some interesting things happened. Now, for those of you not aware, uh, there's a lot of baggage around this information. So whether it was justified or not, whether it was a good thing or not, how bad it was or the degree of fairness involved, all of these things are debatable. But what we do know is that Roddenberry was in a near constant struggle with studio executives when it came to the original series and how much he had to struggle and fight in order to keep hold of his show, his baby. That's very relevant because shortly thereafter, he was then allowed to work on a new project, the motion picture. I shouldn't say shortly thereafter, several years after, but you get the point. So then they worked on the motion picture, and it wasn't that much of a success, but it was a success. But Gene literally got kicked upstairs. He got put into a corner office, cushy job, where his responsibilities and overall political power in the studio were zero. It's probably one of the most literal examples I've ever seen of being kicked upstairs when it comes to corporate politics. He was detached from Star Trek. And from all accounts, what Roddenberry would do is he would sit there and he would just correspond with fans. Which, I mean, good on him. I'm glad he actually found the time to do that. But no actual creative control. His baby taken away from him. Now he's got this new show. And I think a lot of the issues with season one and especially early season one, can all be explained by everything I just told you. Because I think Roddenberry, now that he finally had negotiated some degree of creative control over Star Trek The Next Generation, clung to it so tightly that it, 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 it hindered the ability for the show to grow and his own ability to produce a show at all. This is my opinion. And again, you'll note I'm not insulting the man. I actually completely understand, uh, you know, I, I, if some, if I actually started producing my Imperial works, right, and then, you know, I actually got a show out there, and it's like, woo, and then, then they kicked me upstairs on my writings, but then I was given the chance to do something else with it, I'd be in the exact same boat he was, and I bet a lot of you would, too. The idea of, oh, God, this is going to be great, I'm finally going to, no, we have to do it this way, we have to do it this way, and you know how you get more defensive or more, uh, more aggressive in, in conversations or pushback when you're already on edge or you already feel like you need to defend yourself? Because I have a feeling Roddenberry would have been a little bit more give and take and a little bit more willing to compromise on, on early TNG if not for the fact that he was already in that mentality that he has to defend himself. He, I have to hold on this time, you know? This is all, of course, speculation, and we will sadly never know since the man did pass away just a few years after this. But it's impossible to talk about this without talking about Leonard Meislish. I hope I'm pronouncing that right, but at the same time, I kind of don't care if I don't. <sighs> Let me go ahead and cut off something really quick, because I imagine some of you, like 1 or 2, 3, 8, 50 of you, are rushing to the comment section right now to defend Leonard Meislish. Let me just chop that off right now. Um, well, I imagine that a lot of people demonized him more than they should, I have seen so many different accounts from so many different people before Chaos on the Bridge came out. And then after Chaos on the Bridge came out, there was a whole section devoted to him 
that I think we can at least say that a fairly large, with a fairly large amount of certainty, that the man was a slime ball, and he was a very definitively negative influence on the people with regards to the production of Star Trek, both the original series and, very importantly, TNG. For those of you who have no idea who I'm talking about, Leonard Meislish was Gene Roddenberry's lawyer, and really that's probably all you need to know on that. But he was allegedly, and I am going to say that that way, doing things that he shouldn't be. Uh, writing, re doing rewrites, uh, handing in information or directions that are not his call to make, uh, rifling through people's desks was something that was mentioned, uh, arguing with people extensively about things that he actually has no influence over. Oh, and of course at one point, again, all of this is alleged, I do have to add that, but at one I have no problem believing any of this, uh, again, because this, is, this has been coming up since before Chaos and the Bridge. This is something that goes back to, like, the early 90s. Um, but at one point, uh, apparently, he was actually barred from the studio lot and then came back anyways. <laughs> the, uh, the thing we really don't know is how much of that was Meislish himself. And I know this is an uncomfortable topic to talk about, so I'm just going to try and rush through this as quickly as I can, okay? In my opinion, there are three broad possibilities here. Number one, Meislis was a disgusting, horrible human being who was interfering in Star Trek because it was his, it was his uh, uh, meal ticket, you know? This was his big client, his big project. This was where he really was making his money and his fortune and his fame off of. I mean, this is a man who was nearly investigated for issues, legally speaking, who disbarred himself in order to avoid that. And this is back in the 60s or 70s. I forget the date. Forgive me. You can look it up. But this, this is fact. This is a lawyer who was nearly disbarred for <clears throat> practices. I mean, think about this for a minute. And, of course, he disbarred himself to avoid the inquiry on that one. That says a lot about an individual. I'm sorry. That says a lot, but I'm getting off the point. So, anyways, he was someone... So, possibility one is he was the one just kind of interfering to try and put his stamp on things or to make sure that it was in control or to, to have some little petty power or maybe just because he was a terrible human being. Option two... <sighs> Most of the things that Meislish did were at the behest of Gene Roddenberry. This is actually something that's been postulated before. Gene had this thing where he liked to be the good guy. Uh, he liked to be the, the nice boss, you know, and so he needed, he, he wanted to be the good cop, but he needed someone to be the bad cop because he still had ideas or concepts that he had to push out or fire or whatever, and so he used his lawyer as the bad guy. Which still probably makes Meisler a terrible person. Again, that disbarring thing I mentioned earlier uh, is completely unrelated to this. But the fact remains, that would mean a lot more of the less pleasant stuff that he did would actually sit on Roddenberry's shoulders, not his own. By the way, Leonard Meisler has also passed away, so unfortunately we'll probably never even get close to the truth on any of this. I do posit one tiny bit of, I hesitate to even call it this, evidence with regards to the fact that this might have been Roddenberry. I know uh, people who have worked on Star Trek have postulated this before. The only thing I've heard that really helps to convince me of that, aside from the fact that Roddenberry himself was a little bit of a money grubber, 
you can ask DC Fontana about that, even with regards to this episode, for that matter, and several other people, including the songwriter, you know. Um, when Star Trek VI was coming out, and I talked about this already, uh, Runberry watched it, and by all accounts, and there are multiple accounts that agree with this, he was positive and supportive and said, good job. And then he went home and immediately started pushing legal action to block the release of the film. And that just fits with the overall picture of the guy who wants to appear to be the good guy, but is still someone who is going to do things that would be perceived as bad, and using his lawyer to do those, for that matter. So, third possibility is a mixture of the previous two. Maybe some of this was Meislish, and maybe some of this was Roddenberry. And maybe sometimes they agreed on things, and maybe sometimes Roddenberry had to pull the leash back. I don't know. I actually don't know. And I, all I can do is report this. I will, however, be talking a lot more about another individual, Maurice Horley, later on. But we'll get there. We'll get there. Let's move on. So we have Gene, and he's in the office there. He's actually in control, finally. And he, he really wants to make this happen. Um, and he really cares. He's also pushing back against some other things as well. Right about this time, I don't know how many of you know this, I actually was not really a part of the fan scene when TNG came out. It was shortly after TNG came out that I joined the fan scene. Some of you may remember the infamous old debate, Kirk versus Picard. Now that debate's kind of a joke nowadays, and I, I haven't actually heard that question seriously asked of me in years and years and years at this point. But once upon a time, that was a big thing. There were a lot of people who were there's no nice way to say this, rather virulent about TNG, specifically because it didn't have Kirk, it didn't have Spock, and it wasn't Star Trek. Now, that's interesting because one of the problems that Paramount had and one of the problems that the executives, uh, John Pike talks about this several times, is that they had to get Roddenberry on board. It was mandatory to get Roddenberry on board to do a new Star Trek as far as the executives were concerned because they believed that the fans would not accept a new Star Trek if Roddenberry was not involved, and they probably wouldn't. But the fans were already kind of irate on the matter. So that's another bit of pushback, another bit of stress, if you will, that was being pushed onto Roddenberry during this entire time, and another layer of stress that was also being felt by the executives and the, and the actors themselves. But Let's talk about DC Fontana really quick. Now, uh, I don't think she's like the best writer ever, but I tend to have a lot of respect for her work, and she's certainly a very well-versed, very experienced uh, science fiction author. And she does some great stuff. I, you know, I, I enjoy quite a bit of her works. What I find interesting is that what we have in TNG, for those of you not aware, uh, they kept changing their damn minds. The studio wanted a two-hour premiere. Roddenberry wanted a one-hour premiere. They were thinking about doing a 90-minute premiere. The idea of doing a lead-up explanation of the old Star Trek stuff to new fans was being tossed out there. And, of course, Meislish is once again brought into this, as has been referenced by Fontana herself. As They just kept giving her misinformation, and so she's trying to write an, a script... In two weeks, by the way, this was kind of a rushed production, because of course it was. <laughs> um, and she's trying to write this episode, and she's like, I, uh, the, so 
she basically wrote this whole script, and you can find more details about it online. In fact, uh, I, I am told, although I was not able to find myself, you can actually find a, a you know a script copy of her original version, her original draft of Encounter at Farpoint. It was basically just the encounter at Farpoint. I mean, there was a few more details. There was an additional alien race involved who were being enslaved by the energy thing that was actually the ship and all that fun stuff. But um, you, it was just Enterprise goes out, finds station, mystery of station, you know, finding out what's going on, resolution, etc. And it was a it was a Star Trek episode. It was a typical Star Trek episode. Now, I mean absolutely no disrespect to DC Fontana, but I think that would have been a really weak first episode of TNG. By coincidence or beneficial circumstance or whatever, it turns out that that episode came out to be about an hour in length. So, Roddenberry was called in to write more on it. Now, um, it is worth noting that as a result of this, Fontana got less money, <laughs> but... Roddenberry is, one thing that's been mentioned several times that Roddenberry was really good at is working on a deadline, working when the crunch time is up. So he sat down and he came up with the Q. Now, I'd like to say there's a divisive topic, but actually it's not. Like, Q and John Delancey in particular are almost universally beloved by Star Trek fans and have been for many, many years. So would it surprise you to know that when Gene was doing this, it was a very divisive topic in the writer's room and amongst the producers. A lot of the actors and writers said, this is just Trelane. And Ron Bray's like, no, no, it'll work, it'll work. I'm like, no, Gene, you can't do this. This is stupid. Nobody's going to like this. They're all going to care about the encounter at Farpoint plot, not the Q plot. Now, I have an honest question for you. And as ever, love hearing your comments. Which of the two plots, the A plot and the B plot of this episode, do you prefer? The Q plot, or the Encounter at Farpoint plot? Let me give you a second to go ahead and go start typing away whatever your answer is, or pause me as you're doing that. Uh, my answer is the Q plot, by a wide margin. I'll talk a lot more about that later. We're still in the behind-the-scenes stuff. God, how long have I been talking already? I haven't even gotten to the episode yet. Um, I talk a lot, guys. It's it's literally my job. Um, I mentioned this. It's fascinating and hilarious to see that one of to what to me is really the true interesting aspect of the story comes from the thing that was tacked on to the additional script by an, an expressed atheist no less as an entity who was basically a deity right now i'm not going to talk more about q right now although uh i i will definitely talk about q later what i definitely want to talk about is Patrick Stewart. Now, I know this is kind of an oft-repeated story, but it deserves repeating one more time. Let me just go ahead and say that, regardless of the Kirk versus Picard debate, which, again, I, I'm not really a part of, uh, Patrick Stewart, in my opinion, is a fantastic actor. He's a very classically trained Shakespearean actor. I, I don't know what the proper term is for that, unless it's just Shakespearean actor. And he knows his chops. I honestly think that he was one of the better selling points of this episode. There's several scenes where he just delivers this wonderful, warm, fatherly tone, which is actually funny because in contrast later on, he comes off as very cold and brusque and then rather stiff. But every now and again, you can just hear, for lack of a better term, Patrick Stewart shining underneath the, the character there. So they brought in quite a few people, uh, including, I can't remember his name, the recent Doctor, Doctor Who... 
Uh, oh wait, no, he was the one. He was. I'm sorry. I'm. I'm wrong. I'm wrong. Don't correct me. <laughs> he was auditioning for Cisco. My bad. Uh, there's another actor who was relatively famous, and I can't think of his name now because obviously I just mistook it. But whatever. They brought in a lot of people to to portray Captain Jean-Luc Picard, and Ronberry. This this is indicative. This is one of the reasons I said that it might be difficult to work with Roddenberry because he sh he's one of those creative types, you know. By all accounts, he's one of those creative types. And while that can lead to some amazing stuff, I'm told, because I've never actually worked with one of these people myself, that it's really frustrating to work with someone like that. Point in case. Gene is like, we have to do this. He, I, I need another bill. I need someone virile. There's got to be hair. You know, it's really important. So they bring in people, and they actually flew in Patrick Stewart's toupee in order to, to, to properly have him have hair. And he delivers the scenes, and Ron Bray says, can you bring Stewart back in? Can you bring Patrick Stewart back in? Patrick Stewart comes back in, and he's already taken the rug off, so now he's bald, you know. And um, he delivers his lines, and of course it's Patrick Stewart. So he nails it, and Ron Bray says, you, you are now, you're, you're it, you're a Picard. And... That's hysterical since Roddenberry himself was probably the biggest opponent to Patrick Stewart being, you know, Jean-Luc Picard, and ha was the one who instituted the hair rule. But then it was the studio executives who were like, well, wait, we can't do this. And he's like, no, no, hair doesn't matter in the future. What? And by all accounts, although certain people, including Stewart himself, didn't find this out until years later, Roddenberry never really liked Stewart as Captain Picard. But he was the one who pushed for him to to actually get the role. You see what I mean by the creative type thing? It's just it's just kind of a thing I think that some creators go through. But anyways. So then we have then we have season one as a whole. I'm just gonna mention this right here. Uh unfortunately I couldn't get an exact number, but thirty plus writers and staff left the show in season one. Now, I don't know if you understand how insane that is, uh, but that is absolutely insane. The idea that you could have that much of a turnover rate on a show that has just begun its first season is ludicrous. And most people involved in the business would and did look at that as poison. As in, this show is poisoned, we need to step off from it. I'll talk more about that specific point when we get to the end of Season 1, because it will be very relevant to the plight of Season 2. So, just keep that in the back of your mind. Finally, a couple of small things I want to bring up here. Um, as I said, I don't want to talk about Maurice Hurley just yet, uh, or more, uh, Ronald D. Moore or Bronan Braga yet. They haven't really gotten on board yet. Uh, they were early TNG, but not this early. But I do want to talk about two people. David Livingston and Corey Allen. Now, if you've watched my Voyager stuff, you know I have given much praise to David Livingston, and I can only continue to do so. The man is a fantastic director. But he didn't direct this episode. Uh, he was actually a set manager. He was brought in, production manager, excuse me. And he was brought in to, uh, this was actually his first Star Trek credit, uh, did a whole bunch of stuff behind the scenes with regards to you know his actual job. He wouldn't actually start directing until quite a ways into TNG. But it's interesting to me that Mr. Livingston started his Star Trek career so early. And that's not really that unusual. There's a surprising number of people who started their Star Trek career with Encounter at Farpoint and would stay with Star Trek for many, many years as a consequence. Um, 
Uh, Michael Okuda is another excellent example of someone. Well, actually, he'd started before this, uh, so forgive me, that's not a good example. Uh, I know there's someone else. Um, I don't know if Zimmerman started here. I'd have to look that up. I know, uh, I know both Zimmerman and Okuda were very involved in TNG and encountered Farpoint. I know David Livingston, like I mentioned, Corey Allen. Of course, I talked about him briefly, and I'll talk about it again. Obviously, John DeLancey started his career here. Uh, Cole Meany is probably one of my favorites, but we'll get to him. I do want to talk about Corey Allen for a second, because I've looked at his directorial credits, and I'll decide more when we get to the future episodes. But there's no denying that most of the actors' performance in this episode are flat. Not necessarily bad. There's only a few scenes where they actually come across as bad. And I really feel bad for Marina Sirtis because a lot of them are from her. Or rather, are scenes that are about... Her acting is bad in this episode. But I don't necessarily put that on her. I've seen Marina Sirtis act. And we see Marina Sirtis do a lot more excellent things throughout the course of TNG and Voyager. So I don't think that's quite on her. And then you see how Spiner, who is also a very prolific and very careful uh, actor, act. We see how Patrick Stewart only occasionally comes across as Patrick Stewart. We see how Jonathan Frakes, who was kind of new to his career, comes across as just weird and, and way too... Pro I, don't, I don't even know. Pro he projects himself constantly. Um, we see how Wesley is... Uh, you know, and I could keep going. Pretty much every major actor feels more like a caricature in this particular episode, with very few exceptions. And I cannot possibly say that all of that is due to the actors. You cannot tell me that all of these actors, several of which are experienced, capable, and competent actors, even at this point in time, that, you know, provably, were all doing this. I know this is not a new theory, but I personally think that a lot of this sits on Corey Allen. If you have not heard it or read it, I highly recommend you look into Will Wheaton's own recounting of the creation of Encounter at Farpoint, and <clears throat> he controls the sky! <laughs> just, just look into it sometime. I'm not going to go into it, but my point is, we'll see what I think of Corey Allen in the future, but I wasn't really impressed with the directing of any of the episodes that I saw him on the list for, and honestly, the directing on this episode is kind of amateur. Not just in the performance of the actors, as I just mentioned, but a lot of the shots are not good. They do far too many uh, janky shots. I don't know how else to call that, where they've got a camera that's not on a smooth swivet, so it's basically just someone holding a camera. And it shows, so you see the camera kind of doing this thing, for long uh, panning shots. And then there's these swivel shots that just kind of distract you. And then there's a way too many shots that are like this, just getting right underneath someone and looking up at them. And it's a very awkward angle, and he doesn't fill the background with anything interesting. So the composition's all over the place. But I digress. Let's finally talk about the episode. I, I just want to see something really quick. I have been talking for 42 minutes! Oh my god! It doesn't feel that long. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about the Galaxy-class ship. Now, I've always loved this parallel to Star Wars. Or not parallel, wrong word. This contrast to Star Wars. Because in most military science fiction, there's something called a concept called a command ship. Now, a command ship is obviously battle-capable. It has to be. Its very purpose is to be a ship that is on the front lines. But its purpose is not just to fight. It's more like it has the capacity to defend itself, but it's more reliant on its escort and the ship itself 
is where all the command staff are and all the, 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 you know, the actual leadership is and any VIPs, all that fun kind of stuff. And I like that. The Galaxy class has always struck me as like, again, the contrasting opposite of that. It's the Federation's command ship. What I mean by that, though, is obviously the Federation... Well, first of all, let me just say that I do think Starfleet is a military organization, um, so I'm going to continue to treat it that way, and if that upsets anyone, I do apologize. But it is my opinion that Starfleet is a military organization, and as such, I will be treating them as such. But while Starfleet is a military, the Federation is not a military, which is what I was about to say there. And so the Federation doesn't need a command ship. I mean, yeah, they had the Cardassian conflict, and yeah, they, they had the Klingon War many years ago, but they haven't really had anything significant in quite some time. This is not an era of Star Trek in which the Dominion are looming overhead, or the Borg are a nonstop threat, or whatever, right? This is the 90s. I've said this before. I've said this over on Voyager, I know. This is the Winds of Change era real-life equivalent. This is, the Cold War has ended, and now we have this weird era of just prosperity, as things are just kind of going really well. <laughs> Obviously, it wasn't prosperity in the entire planet, but you get the point. Post-Cold post War, pre-9-11, is this winds of change era, and that's where we're at in Star Trek, in the beginning of TNG. We have made friends with the Klingons. The Romulans haven't been heard from in years. The Cardassians have been settled. The only thing we have that even is approaching a threat is the Ferengi Alliance, and we know almost nothing about them. We are officially in a period of time where having a ship that has families and, and animals and, and recreation facilities and dolphins, if you believe some of the stuff, or, or whales, let's, just, let's actually not get into that, let's ignore that. Um... <laughs> Have, let me put it to you this way. This is an era in which having a counselor on the bridge of a military ship is totally fine. And I kind of like that about uh, TNG, or even early TNG, even season one. It's, in a weird way, it's kind of the frontier again. I mean, obviously, this isn't the frontier, but it's a completely different frontier. All right, we have tamed the land, we have made peace with our enemies. Now what? And that's what a lot of early TNG feels like to me, pretty much until Best of Both Worlds is, is the official moment of that is. And I'll, again, I'll talk about that when we get there. So I love their presentation of this, because I'm saying all this now, obviously, but even as a kid, when I was first watching Encounter at Farpoint with my mom, I had the exact same impression. This is a mall in space. This is Not even a mall, that's actually a wrong way to put it. Mall is really the wrong attitude. This is an apartment complex in space. And I say complex specifically, multiple families, you know, there's the pool, there's a little park area, you know, maybe a little gazebo or something like that, there's pets and, and, and a recreational facility, all this stuff in this ship, which of course does have weapons and shields and decent defenses, and is surprisingly large, especially by Star Trek standards. Strangely enough, once upon a time, Star Trek was known for being way more down to earth when it came to the size of their vessels. Uh, it wouldn't be until the Abrams era, excuse me, the Kelvin timeline, that that would start to not really be a thing. But remember once upon a time when a ship the size of the Enterprise-D, a galaxy class, was a huge ship? <laughs> um, so, I like that. Um, naturally, there's some very stiff exposition at the beginning. Duh. And then Troy senses Q. Now, that's always kind of made me tilt my head a little bit. 
Obviously, we know why that is from an out-of-character perspective. It's because Troy's powers are magic, and so they... Excuse me, excuse me, I'm saying that wrong. Let me, let me remind that. Troy's powers are magic, and as such, they don't actually define them. There, there's not a linear definition for Troy's capabilities. So they can do whatever they need to for the sake of the plot, and this will be used several times in Season 1 TNG. They, they later get a little more concrete about that. However... In character, I like to think the idea that Q just kind of started, shall we say, scanning with his own presence, with his own mind, the ship. And it was that, Im that, was that intrusion, that probe, if you will, that was what Troy actually sensed at first. That makes the moment all the more interesting because it means, as she says, you know, this is something... It, interesting note, she keeps calling Q it. She consistently refers to him as it, and I kind of like that. Uh, obviously, Q... Uh, for a while, was designed to not actually have a gender. Uh, it wasn't until Voyager that Q gender started becoming a thing. Let's not get into that. Point being, <laughs> I do like, however, even if we are to assume Q have a... I can't think of the term. In other words, obviously they don't have physical genders because they're not physical beings. Duh. But even if we are to look at the Q and say that they, you know, identify as masculine or feminine, which is a fine idea and, I, and it makes perfect sense to me, I like, I still enjoy the idea of her consistently referring to Q as it. Because it's not a derogatory, it's not some kind of, you know, insult, it's more, this is something that they're trying to emphasize, that she is trying to emphasize, is so far beyond what she's used to, that she can't quite quantify it. The idea of saying he is just too normal to identify what she's looking at. Which brings me to my first real point. If there was ever an episode that leads one to think that the Q are actually, you know, aliens with advanced technology rather than very powerful energy beings, this is probably the highlight episode for that mentality. If you look at a lot of the things that Q does in this episode, almost all of them make more sense if you assume this is someone with their own ship, basically, who is doing all these things with their own, you know, with their own tech. I have no idea if that was the original intent, and obviously we'll never know since Roddenberry invented Q in the end. Although I do find it interesting that so many people automatically related Q to Trelane, because if you remember, Trelane used tech to do what he did. He wasn't actually a super powerful energy being. He just, he had his instrumentation that he required. Hmm. Anyways, moving on. Um, so I decided to take note of a couple of things. First of all, the f entire first act of the episode, which is almost universally uh, a back and forth between Picard and Q, uh, with a few other characters popping in Data, uh, Troy and... and uh, Oh my god, Yar. I kept wanting to say Denise, because I usually think of her more as Denise Crosby than I do Tasha Yar. But anyways, these characters popping in, but the main back and forth, the main focus of the first act is clearly Picard and Q. Now I mentioned that because it's good. Like, again, this is part of what I was talking about earlier. I was surprised by the dynamic between the two. They have incredible chemistry just right off of the bat. Two of the very few actors in the entirety of, of Encounter at Farpoint who have such natural chemistry. And notice, and I want you to pay very close attention if you're rewatching these episodes with me, which I highly encourage you to do, by the way. Um, notice 
Picard's reaction to Q. Notice how he reacts to him. Notice what he says and how he says it. It is no wonder to me that Q would eventually, or possibly even now, would take an interest in Picard in particular. Because this is someone who didn't cower, but didn't bluster. That hits us this wonderful sweet spot of being strong without being overbearing in response to how he reacts to Q. And then, of course, they, uh, Picard comes up with this strategy, which is classic military, and frankly is so obvious that it probably shouldn't have worked if the Q were actually interested in punishing them. But it's an interesting strategy, and you could tell he figures it out early. It's, it's one of the very few bits of smart writing in the entire episode, because he mentions, okay, we need to do this, uh, can we separate at warp? get the torpedoes ready, and, and there's a lot of things that are laid down there in the script before they become relevant. When you first hear the torpedoes thing, you think, oh god, he's going to attack them. No, later on we find out that's just a screen. But I mention that because that means in character, Picard figured out his entire overall stratagem pretty early. Now again, it's a relatively basic strategy, a very classical maneuver. He's tanking, to use the MMO term. He is tanking for the saucer section so the saucer section can get the hell out of Dodge with all the family and kids. And that is the smart maneuver to do, to turn around. He, he even asks Troy flat out, I'm willing to entertain even speculation on this thing. And she flat out says, this is just beyond us. We can't do anything about this. And you get the impression he already had the same mentality. So he is now fighting at a massive disadvantage against something that overwhelmingly outweighs him. So Picard, and again, helping to establish the character, smartly decides, okay, I'm not going to fight him head on. I'm going to get... The, the innocents, the civilians, out of harm's way, get them on the saucer section, get it the hell out of here, turn around, and face the music. And that is so very Picard that I love that. I'm not, I'm not saying Kirk wouldn't do something similar, don't mistake me, but this really does help to establish him as a completely different style of captain than Kirk, because of the way he does it, because of how far in advance he thinks it through, and because of the fact that he relies entirely on... Uh, there's, this is going to sound like an insult, but I don't mean it as one. On speechifying, he relies on his diplomacy. He relies on his charisma score in order to really win himself through here. Now, it's not like Kirk didn't have a charisma score, quite the contrary, actually. But Kirk would usually rely more on his wisdom or his int scores, his cunning, if you will. I, I hate to keep pulling D&D &D into this, but you know. He would rely more on cunningly outmaneuvering his way through a situation, trusting in his crew, or literally just you know blitzing his way through with, with, with the will necessary to do so. Picard will try to talk you through this. He sits, he actually, he does several things in this episode. I love these little touches. You know, they're all like, everyone stand for, for the judge. And Picard says, he just puts his hand there and says no. And then he quietly sits down. Now, at first glance, you look at that and you're like, why is he being so provoking? Why is he being so petulant? But look at his face and notice how he's acting. And the trash truck. Notice how he's acting in the entirety of the scene. Because at the end of the scene, when they say, please rise, he does so instantly and without question. He even gestures for everyone else to rise, too. Why? Because he is being diplomatic. Now, I know that sounds like a weird thing, to deliberately do the opposite in order to be diplomatic. But this is a classic diplomatic maneuver. It's called knowing your limits. You push the boundaries of the other person to see what they're willing to tolerate, 
and how much you can get away with. It is a classic diplomatic maneuver. And by the end of the trial, when he has learned exactly how far he can push, that's why he immediately says, get up, because he cannot push on this matter anymore. And at this point, they're trying to be magnanimous because they're on thin ice. Again, classic diplomatic maneuver. You, you give more when you are in a weaker position to try and put the other person into a good mood. You get it. It's, it's wonderful little stuff like this that helps make this episode a lot better than I thought it was. This is all that stuff I was talking about earlier. Now, I jotted down a note here. It was 8 minutes and 48 seconds into this episode before Tasha Yar had a line. <laughs> um, I'm going to talk more about Tasha Yar on Denise Crosby in the future. And I am, absolutely. Uh, especially when we get to Skin of Evil. Oh my god. Um, but I think that's indicative, if I could just be completely blunt. 8 minutes and 48 seconds probably doesn't sound like a lot of time until you realize she's been on camera for almost all of that. If not for the fact that she, the camera pull, uh, pulls her into attention for several scenes, along with Worf, you might be mistaken for thinking she's an extra, like Lieutenant Torres was. No, not that one. <laughs> you know, you, you could be mistaken for thinking that, because that's how she's presented, except for the occasional camera pan. I feel like that's at least part of why, and I mention this because this is so early, this is at least part of why Denise Crosby ended up leaving the show, is because... It's even the very first episode, Tashiar is treated as basically a, a third, a C-list character. She has a couple of lines. Almost all of her lines are not what you'd call engaging. And she doesn't get any character development at all, except for one little bit during the trial. And it's actually a good scene. And actually, I'm, I'm up to my second note here. Give me a second. It's finally moving up to my second. Actually, I still have a couple things on the first page. But on the second page... um there's this great scene where uh, she's she's talking about how you should be on your hands and knees, you know, thanking these people. for. And she mentions how I've come from a world like this. And we do eventually learn that she's from a rather unpleasant place, which I'm amazed actually made it into to this, to this show. i got to be blunt. I'll look into that when we get there. But anyway, so she, she comes from a bad place and that she got the opportunity to join Starfleet and that that means a lot to her because... It should. That always made sense to me, even as a kid. I always thought that joining the Federation or being a part of Starfleet or being a part of the Federation proper should be tantamount to happiness forever. I mean, I, I don't know how else to say that. I, not literally utopia. I shouldn't say it like that. But so much better than everything else that's available. You know what I mean? It's something I talked about over on Voyager extensively. For the crew of Voyager, they're in this harsh, terrible situation, but for everyone else in the Delta Quadrant, Voyager's a paradise. Now imagine back in the Beta Quadrants, uh, with, with the actual Enterprise D and the era around, you know, area around the actual UFP territory. Think about how big of a deal it would be to get the chance to actually join Starfleet. I mean, you bet your ass people would be lining up for that. I bet there are a lot of people here on Earth, in real life, who if they were given the choice of joining Starfleet, not the Federation, but Starfleet, the military, and serving and going through all the trials and all the years of, of training and all that that's necessary in order to go push buttons on a pad for the rest of their life, they'd still do it for the benefits of doing so alone. Because of how much better that life could be considered to be than the lives we can live here and now. So, 
I totally get where she's coming from that. But that's the only bit of characterization she has in the whole episode. And it's this one little sliver of a scene. And it's not that well acted. Although, again, I don't put that on Denise Crosby. I put that on Corey Allen. So let me look back here for just a second. Because I want to glance at things. Yes, yes. So, um, what I find weird about the dialogue is some of the dialogue just pops. There's actually some really good stuff. And then some of it is ham-fisted. There's a back and forth between Picard and Q when Q's in the World War II outfit and trying John Delancey's trying to do an American accent. <laughs> um, a, a typical American accent, I should clarify. It's a, actually, it's a decent scene, but it's weird because it starts off preachy and then immediately contradicts itself. Because the first thing they mention is how, oh my God, how savagely violent and horrible we were during the Second World War. And then we've, and then Picard immediately comes back and says, "We've grown out of that time. We are no longer as bad as that." In other words, Picard, although a bit passively, accepts and acknowledges just how horrible human beings were during World War II. Now, obviously, yes, there are human beings who were horrible during World War II, but the idea of presenting it this way gets comes across as a little preachy. And then, not too long after that, Picard immediately turns around and says. Well, we, even in that time, we were getting better. Even back then, we were trying to, to, to progress forward. So you can't actually put this on us, and that leads to the post-apocalyptic thing. And then at 14 minutes and 57 seconds into the episode, O'Brien shows up! He's not called O'Brien yet. In fact, uh, in the credits, he's literally a Battlebridge Con officer. Or Battlebridge Con, excuse me, because he's not an officer. But it's called Meanie. I haven't been able to verify this to the 100% that I would like to. And I'll talk more about this uh, tomorrow, actually, <laughs> when we talk about DS9 and Emissary. But but I remember an interview, this was back at a convention, uh, where they were talking about why Colmini lasted so damn long. He was in the beginning of Star Trek, right there at, Enter at Encounter at Farpoint. Excuse me, the beginning of TNG. So he's at the beginning of Encounter at Farpoint, he was in All Good Things, and then, he, of course, he was a main character for all of Deep Space Nine. Not many people can claim that they, they have been a part of Star Trek for so long. Very, very few people can, can actually say that. And he went from literally being an unnamed guy who had a couple of lines poking at the con to O'Brien. But even in this episode, you can see why. Because Colbini just comes across as just this... Just the guy you'd be friends with, you know? Just a regular, ordinary Joe who is easy to relate to, very human. And uh, and I like that. And getting back to the thing, the idea was that the cast, the crew, the directors and the writers liked Colmini so much that they just kind of kept bringing him back. And then they just kind of kept bringing him back. And you'll notice his appearances accelerate until we get up to the episode uh, Family. I believe is the name of the episode when they finally, you know, he get he becomes a a actual recurring character and eventually uh, then transfers over to Deep Space Nine. But uh, I I like that idea that they just liked the actor so much that they just kind of kept being like, let's bring that Cole Meaney guy back. He was cool. Come on back, dude. So. Uh, so I talked I talked about that. Hang on, I'm actually a little bit before. I do want to say one other thing. I mentioned how they're trying to vary Picard from Kirk. 
establish him as his own captain, which is a good thing to do, actually. In fact, they will do this with Sisko as well, an emissary, and they will utterly fail to do this with Janeway in Caretaker. Well, I'm sorry they did. It took them a bit to finally realize that Janeway could be her own character rather than a female Picard. But anyways, so a lot of people don't really remember how big of a moment this was. I actually distinctly have a memory of me sitting there. I'm leaning up against the chair. Mom's sitting in the chair. We're watching on the TV. And you know, Picard says, we surrender. Both. I remember her giving a gasp at that. Just a little one. Like, you know, what? It's funny because this would actually be used to similar impact in one other Star Trek work. Specifically Star Trek VI. I actually talked about that moment at length, if I remember, during the Star Trek VI rumination, where I mentioned that it was a big freaking deal that Kirk was willing to surrender, and it was the right call. You know, that's not something that happens. Kirk has faked surrendering, but not actually, not legitimately and with total intent for cooperation. That was why it was such a big impact. Here, the first episode, we see Picard surrender with willingness to cooperate, etc., etc., Tanking, in other words, pulling aggro off the rest of his crew and ship. And that's significant. And again, helps to differentiate Picard from Kirk, from the original series in general. So right about at the court scene is when the editing problems show up. Now, I haven't actually talked about this yet. But one of the problems with Corey Allen is that he directs things at a rapid pace. Which means a lot of scenes kind of were rushed through. And so they found themselves short at the end of the, the initial set setup, uh, when they were initially putting it together the first editing draft. So an episode that already had to have literally ad additional crap shoved into it to, to stretch it out as long as it needed to be, then needed to add padding on top of that and what I would normally call sloppy editing, except obviously this was done on purpose, in order to try and stretch the episode out to two hours. If you've ever wondered why Encounter at Farpoint kind of plods along, this is why. Um, sharper editing is usually... I, there's a lot of... Okay, hang on, hang on. I'm about to just give my opinion. Okay, I'm not going to throw any facts out here. So I, I could talk about the way editing has gone in recent years. I could talk about the typical action movie format for editing, which I actually disagree with. Let's leave all that at the door. So just talking my opinion here. There's a form of editing that keeps the flow of motion and action going smoothly. Now, that's the important part to me from an editing perspective. It has to flow smoothly from point to point. It doesn't have to be fast-paced. It doesn't have to be... Da -da 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 it doesn't have to be like six edits for someone to go from a door to, to over a fence or anything stupid like that. It just has to flow naturally and smoothly, right? The opposite of that, well, the opposite of that would be the six edits, but the, the inverse, I suppose, of that would be what we have in Encounter at Farpoint. And again, it starts to show pretty much from the court scene onward because there's a lot of shots that just go on too long. It's like... Da -da 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 -da. Camera pans, and then shifts, shift angle. Well, what is she? Da -da 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 -da. Shift back. Da -da -da. You know, it's like they were trying to buy seconds in between the edits by stretching out the edits, which I shouldn't say it was like they were doing, because they were doing that. They've admitted this. This, this is fact. You know, they were trying to stretch out the edits far more than they would. So, doesn't help the overall pace of the episode at all. Then, of course, it's a little bit 
on the nose that Q is a dictatorial judge. Now, I want to talk about this briefly. There's no denying in my mind whatsoever that this was uh, Roddenberry pulling a fairly typical science fiction trick uh, with regards to storytelling when he originally wrote this episode. Uh, or I should say the Q parts of this episode. Because Q is being presented as a superior being, a more advanced intellect. I am better than you, but I am acting inferior to you. You know? Uh... This actually kind of became a joke among certain Star Trek circles as, you know, godlike aliens are all are essentially a child. You know, oh, isn't that always the way, you know? Godlike aliens, I'm so sick of god... This even became a joke over on Farscape. Um, which I will never do a rumination on, John Go. Not that you're watching this. So, it's an obvious trope to present. The idea that Q is obviously more advanced... And obviously less advanced, you know, intellectually, morally, uh, internally, you know, the, the more ineffable qualities. But what I actually kind of like about it is that it makes a lot more sense if you've already seen all of Star Trek. I have a question for you guys. Do you think that Q is just willingly being the puppet of the continuum here? Now, I imagine an overwhelming majority of you are going to say, no, of course he's not. He's been rebelling against the Continuum for forever. And we know that thanks to Q's development as a character throughout the course of the two series he's in. Three, excuse me. He had that one-off in DS9. But I mention this because why do you think he does this this way, then? Obviously, we know from an out-of-character... I already talked about the out-of-character perspective. But from an in-character perspective, why does he do this? And I came up with some ideas myself. My first and most obvious thought is this is Q making fun of the continuum. How does he present himself to them? As an overly elaborate judge on a freaking floating throne where he has judged, jury, and executioner in the darkest time, quote-unquote, of human history, and he presents himself as this absolute dictator who is unwilling to follow his own rules and obstinate and generally just a terrible person, and wouldn't that be exactly what Q thinks of the Continuum like, for some of his perspective? That was my first catch. That he was he was like, okay, well, I have to do what the Continuum says or else, but I'm at least going to have fun with it and make fun of them the entire time. Hence his, his portrayal. It could also be a bit of defiance. Q, if you pay attention, there's several times where Q is surprisingly fair to the Enterprise crew, and to Picard in particular. And at the time, I think that was done basically just to get the plot moving. Like, I can't give any credence to that. But again, from an in-character perspective, looking back, there's a lot of times where Q basically hands Picard a bone. says, here, I'll help you out on this one. Or I'll go with you on this thing. I'm willing to accept your terms on this. He didn't have to. At no point in time did he have to. And frankly, Picard was not actually talking his way around the circumstances. The, the wall was just too thick for that diplomatic approach. It only ends up working because Q starts being willing to go with him on a few things. And again, looking back, that makes perfect sense. Because Q, for all of his problems, for all of his portrayals, has never come across as actively malicious. The kind of person who would be totally callously okay with judging an entire species as a barbarous, savage race and then threatening them with seclusion, cordoning, or extermination. 
Instead, he comes across as the kind of person who would be like, all right, I'm bored, and I have to do this stupid job for the continuum, so let's go with this, oh, you're interesting. And that's how I feel he is this whole time. We'll be talking about the different portrayals of Q. There's three major portrayals of Q throughout the series, and we'll talk about them as we go through it, but I digress. Also, if, if I may be uh, so bold, one quick question. Why does the Continuum give a damn about humanity? Actually, a follow-up question. Why does the Continuum give a damn about them in general? Because they keep saying humanity. Over and over and over they say humanity. Even when talking to an android and a half-betazoid, they keep referring to them as human. I'm sure Data would be pleased. But we also have a Klingon and, well, several Vulcans, and God, I hope there's some other non-humans on the Enterprise-D. Why the human fixation? Now, this actually comes up again in All Good Things, and I hate to jump ahead in my notes by seven years, but uh, if you think about it, they keep saying humans, but they are totally okay with their actions having a severe negative consequence on everyone else that is a mortal biological humanoid being, like the Klingons and the Romulans and the Vulcans and you know, all those, right? Betazoids, Bolians, you get it. I get the feeling that either they are, the Continuum, are so negligent that they just don't give a crap, that they don't even care about what taking the humans out of the equation would do, or they're not actually after the humans at all, they're after the bipedals, you know, or whatever you want to call them, the humanoid races as a whole. I'm not sure which idea I find more terrifying, because both of them are pretty horrible when you think about it. And again, in all good things, remember, based on what we see, they effectively wipe out all life in the entire quadrant to take out humans. Yeah. Anyways, <clears throat> moving on. So then we have Crosby overacting. Again, no offense to her. I already talked about that, really. Um, and Q actually flat out says, remember, this trial is your only hope. Again, I ask, was he already an advocate for humanity? Or at the very least for Picard. I have a hard time f believing that Q would care about humanity. But I do believe, I do believe that Morden Effect would take, a, take place here. For those of you who haven't watched my works before, Morden Effect is the idea that an individual is something you can grasp and care about and, and you want to help or hate or whatever, but a, a number is far more difficult to do so. You know, you're saving the galaxy for your favorite nephew, not for the galaxy. I have the feeling that Q, up into this, this is pure speculation, but based on his portrayal, even just in this episode alone, I get the feeling that he saw humanity as a whole and was like, ugh. You know, maybe not the barbarous savage thing, but definitely the whatever, nothing interesting there. Until he met one in person. And who is the first human he really meets in person and really starts interacting with on a personal level on a regular basis? Picard, who, as I mentioned earlier, thanks to his portrayal and thanks to how he reacts to him, immediately gets his attention. So I think that even now, even now, Q was starting to advocate for... Picard, even if not humanity as a whole. Um, so, moving, I'm sorry, I already talked about a lot of this stuff because I skipped ahead of my notes a bit, so forgive me here. Uh, let's talk about Farpoint Station. So we finally, we're at like the 30-minute mark, we, we see Farpoint Station. Let me say something that's going to put me um, 
into a category that, that once again is going to make certain Trek fans hate me. I like the new graphics. I haven't seen all the new graphics, obviously. Uh, I actually bought the Blu-rays specifically for this playthrough. Or playthrough, wow. Specific for this run through the series. And I gotta say, I really do like the new effects. But I also want to say one other thing, really quick. And I meant to talk about this earlier. Uh, obviously, I've had the DVDs for forever of TNG. Have you listened to them lately? I mean, obviously, I do think the touched-up graphics are a very definite improvement, and Farpoint Station itself is what reminds me of that most. But the audio is what really sold me on it. Now, I bet some of you out there are already nodding your head because you already know what I'm talking about. But in the off chance you don't, if you have the availability, do me a favor and pull up a scene. doesn't matter what. It, it, it helps if there's people talking during the scene on one of the DVDs or a DVD rip, and listen to it. Just close your eyes and listen to it, and then immediately play the same scene on the Blu-ray quality. And you should notice the difference immediately. The first time I noticed the difference, it blew me away when I first saw the Blu-ray. Uh, I forget what it was. It was like a, a piece, a snippet of a Blu-ray episode. It was, In fact, I remember the episode. It was the episode uh, Booby Trap from Season 3. And I was struck by how different it sounded. See, for those of you not aware, the DVDs have audio compression, so not only is the audio a little bit grainier, a little bit lower quality, it also has a little bit higher pitch to it. And the moment I noticed that, I couldn't unnotice it. But the Blu-rays have proper audio presentation and a good codec, so it actually sounds good. So if, if for nothing else, for the audio, it was worth picking up the Blu-rays, in my opinion. At least now that they're not a billion dollars each season. <clears throat> Moving on! So... I hate to be that guy. Why is this place called Farpoint Space Station? They go out of their way more than once in this episode to call it a space station. Like, they don't just call it Farpoint Station, which would have been easy enough to do, or Farpoint Outpost, or the station. No, they specifically say space station. It's on the ground. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, why make that deliberate contrast? I've never understood that. Even in the original script, it was on the ground. I don't know. Whatever. Moving on. Uh, the contrast between the old Bondi stuff, Bandy, Bondi, and the new, you know, Farpoint Station stuff is a little bit too stark for me. It's a little bit too, uh-huh. And I also have to question something really quick. Why, uh, maybe this is a normal thing, I don't know, but why would you have a ship go out to Farpoint Station, drop off some crew that are going to be new crew for a new ship, have them wait there, then have the new ship show up and beam the new crew aboard? I feel like I'm missing a step there. I mean, I get the presentation and why this is supposed to work, because this way we have a definitive first act and a definitive, you know, here's an introduction to the character. In other words... From a fictional perspective, when you're introducing characters, you don't want to just sit and introduce all 10 or 12 characters. Bam, 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 bam. You don't want to do that. Uh, that will get very exp overly expository very quickly and will bog down the episode and the viewer. So I get sp stretching it out, absolutely. But, I mean, weren't there other ways to do this? I, I don't know, I don't know. Moving on, moving on. So, I want to talk about slanting really quick here. Slanting is something that a fictional work does where you're supposed to think blah, okay? Now, I bet you know exactly what I'm talking about, even if you don't understand the way I'm communicating it because I'm terrible at communicating ideas. The idea is 
when a character in a fictional work, game, book, movie, show, is supposed to be smarter than other people, you know the 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 work, the fictional work slants it so that it's very clear, in fact a little bit too clear, slanting is usually very obvious, that this character is intelligent. So for example, um let's just use the example in Encounter at Farpoint, stuff keeps happening that's little huh. And there are two characters which immediately pick up on it, and everyone else just dismisses it as, yeah, whatever, even though it's really obvious and anyone with any kind of a brain would immediately pick up on it. But only the two people who are we are supposed to be slanted towards thinking are intelligent are the only ones who pick up on it. Those would be Riker and Wesley. Um, Encounter at Farpoint does a lot of slanting, and Star Trek is kind of known for doing slanting in general as well. Uh, this is just such an overt example of it that I felt the need to point it out. But... <laughs> well, I'll get to that. I'll get to that. So then they get on the ship, and Picard, who has been intelligent, thoughtful, diplomatic, and even kind, suddenly is a cold ass to Riker. Huh? And in fact, he's kind of portrayed that way for almost the rest of the episode. It's a really weird contrast. And I don't just mean, like, because he's... It's, it's Again, this is that slanting thing. It's being presented as if not that he's busy or that he's worried. He's just, yes, go, do your thing. Oh, and welcome aboard. You know, th that scene is slanted so that we see that there's some kind of tension or issues there, or maybe just Picard's a dick. If In a normal piece of fiction, if that was our first introduction to a character, that kind of slanting usually means they're either a bad guy or are a person we're supposed to not root for, you know, a, a heel, basically, right? Obviously, Picard is not that, and this is not our first shot of him, but I digress. So then... <laughs> I'm, I'm... And then he forces him to do the manual docking thing. That at least makes a degree of sense. Um, and then he tests him. This is the only thing that makes a degree of sense. He flat out says, you know, he, he challenges him. He says, you're, he basically says, you're wrong. Why do you think that you're wrong? And then Riker stands his ground on Picard. And it's obvious that's what Picard wanted based on the end of it. In fact, Picard will even talk about this to, uh, Oh, I can't think of his name. It's a much further on episode. It's the one about the 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 transphasic cloak episode with Riker and Admiral, I forget his name. Anyways, but Picard wanted someone who was willing to challenge him, someone who was willing to be another voice in the room. It's actually something I myself tend to like when it comes to my own projects. I like someone who is willing to argue with me, who is willing to say you're wrong, rather than just kowtowing to whatever I want, because we're not going to have a proper intellectual discussion. And it, in my experience, having sounding boards going back and forth is better than having echo rooms going back and forth. But I digress. So then the saucer section shows up uh, in 51 minutes. They actually say the number. The saucer section can't really do warp. I mean, it has warp one capability, barely. Um... Did they really do this this close to the station? <laughs> I don't know. Whatever. I just... It, even as a kid, that made me go, hang on, what? Because even as a kid, I thought, well, the nacelles mean warp. And the saucer, therefore, does not have nacelles, therefore no warp. This was before I knew anything about the technical manuals or any of my ship, you know, being a ship guy came into it. It was just, huh? But I digress, I digress. 
So we see one quick scene of Jordy. Now this is funny because I mentioned before that Kra Tasha, Tasha Yar, only gets one scene of character development at all. It's the one I already mentioned. Uh, Worf also gets one. I didn't even mention it because it was so brief it barely even occurred to me to do so. Worf says, as a Klingon, I must, you know, I will not leave. And then Picard says, as a Starfleet officer, you will do it. And, and then Worf says, yes, sir. Now, that scene actually does a lot better job of, of establishing Worf than Tasha's scene did of her. Because rather than just shouting his backstory, he says, no, honor demands I do this. And then Picard pulls on the one thing that is more important to Worf, his duty. And so his duty leads him to go ahead and, and, and do what is he is told of him. It is very minor, but it is there. Then we have Geordi, who also has basically one scene of character exposition, in which he's sitting there being uh, looked at by Dr. Crusher, the second most attractive woman in the world. What? Even as a kid, I had a huge crush on her. Um, and she, uh, and it's actually a rather well-written, natural scene of good exposition. And of course, LeVar Burton is a very warm and just, you know, likable kind of a guy. And it just kind of comes across. Jordy's just like, yeah, hey, you know. Um, and so it's presented very well, and we get a little bit of his personality, mostly in how he says it. But also, we learn about the visor, and we learn about his headaches and the pain he has to go through for it. And we learn that he's willing to put up with that to remain who he is. And that's actually really nice and really subtle. And honestly, I don't actually think it was done on purpose. But if it was, it's brilliant. Because it's a scene about being different being okay. Being different isn't easy, after all. Being different isn't, isn't smooth or something that you can just do naturally. In his case, being different causes him literal physical pain. But that's okay. And he doesn't give some big speech. He doesn't call attention to it. He just says, no, thank you. I'm okay with who I am. And I liked that. <laughs> Anyways, moving on. So then we see DeForest Kelly. They actually went through extensive lengths to keep this a secret before the episode came out. And I admit my first thought was, BONES, when I first saw him. Um, DeForest apparently was kind of in opposition to The Next Generation until they got the ball rolling a bit more, and Roddenberry went out and asked him, will you please show up as a guest star? And he was like, yeah! And by all accounts, he was pretty nice about the whole affair. And it was nice to see him, and his interactions with Data are a genuinely good scene. I don't have anything else to add to that. It was nice to see him. So, <clears throat> there's a quote that Picard gives. Is this it? Yeah, I'm finally on page three of my notes. Don't worry, we're going to write this down soon, I swear. There's a quote that Picard sa says, If we're going to be damned, let's be damned for who we really are. And I like that quote. And in fact, I love that quote. It's the idea that... There's a, there's a psychological idea here, and I don't know what it's called. But the two mindsets are either... I need to behave completely differently because I'm being judged, or I need to behave the same as I always would because I'm being judged. In other words, the, it's kind of the difference between submission and defiance in a weird way. Uh, the defiance being the, I'm going to just be myself regardless of the fact that you're watching, and if you don't like what you see, that's up to you. I don't mean to say this in a negative light, but that's kind of what I do on my own show. I'm just me in front of the camera. I don't put on a persona. 
or or invent a mask or whatever for these uh, for these ruminations that I do. I just sit here and talk like I would normally, as if you were actually there. And uh, and if you don't like that, then okay, you know that, that's not for everyone, right? I would rather be damned for who I am, for who I really am, than for some kind of a mask that I'm putting on. The thing is, as I was really analyzing that line, I realized I don't think that's what was meant by that line. Because it depends on who wrote it. If that was written by D.C. Fontana, then I guarantee you that what she intended was what I just said. If it was written by Roddenberry, though, I think that what was being said is, we are so evolved, we, have got, we are so much better than we were, and we have become such a better people that we are unafraid of being judged because we are perfect. We are paradise. And why would paradise be afraid, right? It is, as the old saying goes, easy to be a saint in paradise. Anyways, so then we see a total lack of chemistry between Marina Sirtis and Jonathan Frakes. I've seen those two in real life before. They get along great. Most of the TNG crew uh, get along great and are still friends to this day. And uh, I think a lot of that is part of why TNG succeeded so much. I'll talk more about that when we get around to Season 3, because that's when that really starts becoming a deliberate thing. I'll get to it. Don't worry. All you need to know right now is it's funny how much the two are like two giant pieces of wooden cardboard banging against each other. No, I don't mean like that. Get your mind out of the gutter. I mean... <laughs> You might as well be scrawling the lines on these pieces of cardboard rather than actually delivering them for how, frankly, terrible their performances are against each other. And it's just like, wow, okay. And again, Frakes and Sirtis actually have really good chemistry together later on, which is why this is just funny. Um, and then they drop, they name drop the Ferengi. They do it twice, or three times, excuse me. They do it three times in this episode. Now, obviously we know, looking back, that that was being done deliberately because they wanted the Ferengi to be the new bad guys. You know, like the Klingons had been, like the Romulans had been. They wanted a new bad guy race, and the Ferengi were being built up to be it. We'll talk more about the Ferengi later, but it is interesting to see that those seeds were being planted on the very first episode. That shows a little bit more of foresight into the development of this new world than they were doing, frankly, back in the original series, where they were making up a lot of that crap by the seat of their pants. Um, I shouldn't say crap, that, mean, that implies derogatory, but you get my point, you know. The entirety of Vulcan culture basically didn't exist until Amok time, for example. <laughs> um, so, um... And then, I have a note here that just says, Sirtis' performance is frankly awful, but I don't blame her. Loneliness. Terrible loneliness. Oh my god, it just drags on and on and on. Oh. <sighs> Moving on. I don't have anything else to add to it. I, I, I blame the director. I blame the editing. I blame the production issues. I do not put any of this on Marita Sirtis. Um, because I have no information that leads me to think that Marina Sirtis is a terrible actress. I've seen her act. <laughs> you know? Anyways. As I've said before, even a good actor can put in a bad performance. That's, that's been true many, many, many times. So then we see the holodeck. Woo! Now, 
the holodeck is such is probably one of the weird things that Star Trek TNG in particular added to cultural consciousness that I don't think it intended to. The very concept of a holodeck is so prolific and so common that I could probably walk down the street and and start up a conversation with someone and mention a holodeck and there is an extremely good chance that they know what I'm talking about at least in the broad strokes. I find it fascinating, too, because if you think about it from a purely practical perspective, a holodeck is ridiculously impractical and uh, will be presented very inconsistently throughout the course of this entire series. But I will be discussing the holodeck at length, as I did over on Voyager, because there's several things that I do feel need to be discussed. And unfortunately, we are going to have to get into some topics that I usually like to avoid when discussing the holodeck right now. Right now, all I have to say about the holodeck is that from a purely writing perspective, it's brilliant. And I mean that with total sincerity. You're making a show. You need to have episodes that are cheaper. That's a thing. That's a reality. You have a budget. You can't have every new planet be a new set. Not unless you are doing really well financially. Later on, TNG would actually have new set designs for almost every planet. But early on, there's a reason there's planet soundstage. You notice how almost every alien planet looks basically the same when they go down to it? It's because it's the same damn set. Studio D lot or something like that. I forget. I'll look it up when we get there. But it's almost always the same damn thing because they were on a shoestring budget. What's one thing that can help really stretch out that money? Well, Star Trek isn't the only show or movie being produced by that studio in the Paramount lot, right? So it's much, much cheaper way cheaper to basically just go borrow another set or to do like a, a brief location shoot depending on the location obviously uh, in, in a relatively easy to rent area than to build a new set for a new area but how do you do that on a science fiction show well you have a holodeck and now you can have something set on that old western set you already have built and ready to go over there all you have to do is walk over it or the Dixon Hill series which would start up pretty soon it's another example of that. Because those sets are already built. All you have to do is pay for the time using them, which from a financial and accounting perspective is way cheaper than setting up your own set or doing your own, hell, doing anything else, really. So now you can do, and, and from a creative, so that's from purely from a financial perspective. Now from a creative perspective, you can do period pieces. You can do analyses on history or past or, or concepts that you couldn't otherwise do that wouldn't be feasible otherwise because it's fiction in the fiction. And now you have opportunities for character development or dynamic or uh, examining new concepts or all sorts of, of, of a wealth of possibilities. The holodeck was brilliant from a writing perspective, both financially and creatively. And that's, of course, why they took it and made the holodeck malfunctions thing its own freaking trope. But I digress. We'll get there later. That isn't an issue here. I do want to say one thing that I do have to talk about pretty much right at the beginning. Uh, oh, actually, really quick aside. It, just really quick. I, I meant to mention this. If you remember in the original series, there were several times where they found an Earth-like planet. In fact, it happened a lot. Unusually a lot. Now that we know the reason why they did that, it's because they already had those sets and they wanted to do period pieces. They wanted to be able to do that kind of a thing. So, okay, you know, again, financial and creative sense makes sense, but in TOS they just had them go to a planet that just happened to be really Earth-like. 
multiple times. Holodeck is a way better way to do that. Anyways, so Wesley comes off the holodeck. He's drenching wet. This is something that has been nitpicked so many times it's actually funny to me because even here in the first episode, they hint, although do not state explicitly, what's going on with that. Let me give you a slightly different example than the water on Wesley. So you go on the holodeck, and you're going to a bar where there's some jazz singer playing, and you sit down and you order a meal with your friend. You just want to enjoy the ambiance and soak it in. That's it. That's it. That's your holodeck time. You know, nothing else, nothing fancy. Do you honestly think that the holodeck is going to produce these force fields with holographic recreation on them that's going to reproduce the texture and taste of food and water and liquid so perfectly that you could barely tell the difference and also still be projecting that even while it's entering your system? Or do you think it just replicates it? I have assumed ever since I was a kid that the holodeck uses replicator technology and transported technology and holographic technology in order to accomplish the magic that it basically does. And again, it is a very impractical thing, and the more you think about it, the more impractical it becomes. But, in my mind, that one thing is not an issue. Because, again, it would make far more sense for that water to actually be water. And it can dereplicate things. We've seen this before. So once, you know, once the holodeck program is closed, it all goes away, but of course that was still water that was replicated, and thus Wesley is still drenching when he comes out of it. This is actually a thing that will be repeated several times. Uh, para example, there's a later thing where there's literally a snowball that comes flying out of the holodeck as a result of such an incursion. But when a person walks out... Anyways... So, Data is acting really weird in the holodeck. And i got to be blunt, that's one of the few things I remember distinctly about Encounter at Farpoint from when I first saw this episode when I was five or whatever. Or seven? God, I don't remember the year. I was young. Single digit. I, I do remember this, though. And the reason why is because, first of all, Brent Spiner does a pretty good job of Data. I want to give him credit where credit is due. Even in this episode, he comes across uh, very robot-like. Later on, he would come across more Android-like, and that would be much better, but I digress. Point being, he comes across as he is playing a robot. And yet, there's a couple of scenes here and there, and there will be some in other early Season 1 stuff, too, where he just acts wrong. And one of this is where he's whistling, and he says, Oh, such a curious thing. Looking back, it's like, oh my god, it's Lore! <laughs> like, that's exactly how Lore acts. And then he jumps down and he's right back to being dead. And it's like, huh? Again, even as a kid, that bothered me. Because they've already established this. This is not our first introduction to Data. This is our first introduction to Data, the holodeck. And so, yeah, anyways. So I talked about the holodeck. Um, I mentioned earlier that uh, Stewart is a theatrical actor. Uh, McFadden is actually a theatrical, theatrical actress as well. And it, it shows in a lot of her performance, in a good way. I do think she, this isn't just the crush talking, I swear. She does do a good job of portraying her role, uh, what little there is there. I just wanted to draw attention to one thing that I've actually never noticed before. I always love it when I'm going through with a rumination and I notice something I've never noticed before. She's talking about uh, Jack Crusher's death to Wesley, and it's some good exposition there, admittedly. And she's mentioning how you know, Picard is a little bit stiff because he's just not that friendly and familiar with family types, right? Blah, 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 all this stuff that we already know. But the way she says it is 
brilliantly subtle because she says, you know, explorer people. And then she gives this really small sigh and just a little bit of a sag. And then she says, don't have time for a family. That tiny motion, that tiny expression speaks volumes. Now, I hate to be a shipper, but those two should have ended up together. I'm sorry. <laughs> there is so much natural chemistry between the two actors, and there's so much hinting, especially at early TNG, that the two care about each other in a more non-fling way. In other words, it's not just, oh, you're cute, or, oh, you're sexy. It's more like, you are a friend I care about in, in a way that I would like to have something more long-term with, a more in-depth relationship. And there's several hints of that, even in the first episode. No, never mind the fact that Picard allows Wesley onto the bridge right after that. I actually hate that scene. It drags on so long. I'll talk about that in a second. But he allows that. He's nice to her. He goes. He apologizes to her. How many other crew members has he went out of his way to apologize to? He In the middle of a crisis situation, he bothers to go down to talk to her. And while I'm talking about that scene, really quick, I just want to say, that scene is, again, the Roddenberry box, I think, coming into play. And I didn't realize that until this... I keep wanting to say playthrough. Until this walkthrough. Run-through? Watch-through? Until this watch-through. The watch-runner. Um, I talk about watches the whole time. At first glance, and second glance, and 18th glance, and however many times I've seen this episode, it feels like what's happening is Picard is trying to reach out to someone he cares about and offer her something so that she doesn't have to deal with this. Running under the assumption that she has been forced into this position and doesn't want to be here. She then reasserts, no, I signed up for this because I'm the best damn doctor around and I want to be on the flagship and this is a career move. Also, funny little fact, I, I hate to nitpick, but really quick, earlier she mentions that her interests are outside of command, even though she's actually a commander, and as we have we established throughout the course of the series, she actually took the command tests, is command capable, and is part of the command infrastructure, which is actually unusual for even a chief medical officer to be. Most CMOs are actually not part of the actual officer track like she is. Nitpicking, moving on. But I mention this because even here we can establish pretty clearly that she is career-minded. This is a woman who is driven and wants to move forward. It's kind of the person who will accept a job at Starfleet Medical uh, in, in the future. Although we'll talk about that when we get to Season 2. But I mention this because at second class this is actually her not grieving for her dead husband because we're humans and we don't grieve anymore. We have evolved beyond the need for that kind of grief. And that is a direct thing from the Roddenberry box. And I think that's what was being intended. Moving on. I said I'd talk about the Wesley scene. Uh, okay. Let me just say that I actually like Will Wheaton a lot. I've, I've met him in person. He's a cool guy. And I like his uh, tabletop show quite a bit. He's a pretty cool geek. Um, and I've seen him at a lot of conventions. And I have seen him uh, in a lot of on-screen a lot. And... Uh, I think he's a pretty awesome guy. I just want to get that out there to start, okay? I don't hate Wesley as much as most people. But I can understand why most people do. For me, it's just... Uh, pretty much from this point on to the rest of this episode, I just wanted to start skipping through scenes. This is when the episode really starts to nosedive in quality as it's barreling towards the end. Um, and 
what's irritating to me is I get what they were going for. The whole idea and the music that's playing and the camera angle that's being pulled and the presentation of, of the lighting and everyone's expression is supposed to indicate that this is a child on the bridge of a starship. Now, I know that this is 2017 when I'm recording this, and that's such a normal, mundane thing nowadays to think, even, even from a fantastical perspective. But really think about that for a second. I want you to honestly sit back. If you're watching this, you're probably a fan of Star Trek. If you've been watching this this long, you're definitely a fan of Star Trek. How would you feel to be on the bridge of the Enterprise? Be honest. And I get that that's what they were going for. This wonderment. This awe. Problem is, we've seen the bridge of the Enterprise D uh, a lot. This is towards the final acts of the episode, where they finally get to this point. And it's presented so badly. Like, I don't get any of that wonderment from it. I can only get that from a purely distancely intellectual perspective. I can sit back and think, oh, that's what they were trying. But none of that comes through in its presentation. And again, Corey Allen. Moving on. Uh, quick small note. Uh, they use site-to-site -site transport, which is interesting that they do that. I don't know if that was deliberate. But as a fan, and as the kind of person who pays attention to little details, eh, uh, <laughs> I have to say that that was an interesting touch. Even, again, even when I was a kid, if you remember, transporters were still relatively limited in the original series and in the, and in the motion pictures, uh, the, the films as well. Doing a site-to-site -site transport, basically beaming you from here to here without ever touching the ship, was considered unusual and the kind of thing you could only do under certain circumstances, and even then it was usually risky, right? Here, Riker's just like, beam me to them right now, and then it happens. Like it's normal thus establishing that the transporters are definitively better and can do things like that, which not only puts another tool in the writer's arsenal, but helps us to think that things have advanced since the old days, and etc., etc. It's a nice little touch, is all I'm trying to say. So, um, here's my notes about Wesley. Uh, and then Zor... I haven't talked about Groppler Zorn yet. I don't have much to say about him, other than the fact that he's one of the Runder twins. Um... But I do want to say that I find myself wondering why he is so damn evasive. This is a man... If he was in a D&D character, his deception skill would be negative five. He does not know how to lie to save his life. More or less literally. And uh, he constantly comes across as just way too evasive and way too overtly lying. You know what I mean? And it's actually kind of insulting. But I'll talk more about that in a minute. And I don't have anything else to say about him, really. Then, I just, I, I hate to keep nitpicking, but at one point Worf is like, we have no record of any vessel like this, not even close. It's a saucer! It's a freaking flying saucer, one of the most basic forms of alien ship ever, that even exists that way because of basic physics, you know, the, the artificial gravity thing, right? You can't tell me that this iconic attempt, a, a design of a starship, is something you've never even seen anything like before. <sighs> Moving on. So then we see... I'm sorry. I'm getting a little more negative because by this point in the episode, I'm just... Ugh. There's a scene where Riker's like, I need to go. And Troy's like, no, don't! If something should happen to you! I can barely even tell what she's saying because she's forcing it out so quickly and so brusquely. And then Riker's like, no, you have your orders, lieutenant. And then she says, of course, sir. 
I, I can't even do it. I can't even be as emotionless as she is in that scene. Again, I'm not blaming this on Marina Sirtis. But that scene is so stupid. And again, it's trying to... It's, it's something that they did earlier. I haven't even talked about the Imzadi thing. I haven't even talked about the fact that they started off trying to establish the Troy and Riker dynamic, which wouldn't be concluded until freaking insurrection. What, nine years from now? Something like that? Eight years? More than seven years from now, they would finally get around to going back to the Deanna Troy thing. Or excuse me, the Deanna Troy, wow. The Deanna Riker. The Troy Riker thing. And again, I don't want to come across as shipping, but make up your damn minds. Pick. <laughs> God. Why do that? Right at the beginning, in the first episode, with two actors who have... Well, they do have chemistry together later... Maybe as the actors got to know each other. I don't know. But, I mean, they come... Again, cardboard. Clang, clang. I hate to call this out, but I'm just going to say, have you seen Caretaker? First episode of Voyager? Now, I've talked about this before, so forgive me. But one of the things that I feel that really sold early Voyager and makes it still enjoyable to watch to this day, despite the scripting, despite the issues with the writing, despite the issues with the directing, despite the massive executive meddling and the fact that Jerry Taylor is not someone I like. Or is it Jerry Taylor? Yeah, I think it's Jerry Taylor. Um, yeah, because Jerry Ryan's the actress and Jerry... God. Anyways, despite all of that, there is such immediate, natural, and dynamic chemistry between all the actors. Just BAM! First episode. Caretaker. Before, before we've even established them. First scene with Harry and Tom. They're great together. First scene with, with Janeway and Tuvok, they're great together. First scene with Chakotay and Taurus, they're great together. Just bam, 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 bam. Establishing those bonds and having great actors who naturally gel with each other was a huge selling point for me for Voyager and is honestly why I, I, I legitimately think is one of the biggest reasons why that show got to go until it got good, you know? Or better, if you will. Why is it that there is such a lack of that here. Especially since later on, TNG would be known as the character show with great chemistry between its actors. To answer that question, <sighs> uh, I mentioned the shoestring budget and the production issues. One thing I didn't go into detail on, forgive me for going behind the scenes a bit here, one of the things I didn't go into detail on is that they had basically trailer crap as their place where they could be while they were working on the show. Pretty much as low-end as it got, is what I'm trying to say. No proper catering. Uh, this may sound like a weird thing, but eating properly and drinking properly is actually really, really important to an actor and an actress. It's, it's actually something that I believe is, as of now, part of the SAG, uh, part of the Screen Actors Guild, that you have to have X level of quality when it comes to food and drink. But it's obvious, even regardless of legality, why that's important, right? You want your actors to be in the zone. You don't want them to be thinking about how hungry they are. You don't want them to th be thinking about how much of a headache they have, cause, or, or how tired they are, or how difficult it is to concentrate. You want them to be focused on their craft. Right? Makes sense? So these actors are literally stealing food from other sets in order to get in order to sneak in lunch, and are literally living on basically a dirt clod with, with tiny little trailers that are the size of my entire room. So, smaller, basically, is the space they actually have. Having to deal with 
All of that crap is, I think, one of the biggest reasons why so many of the actors not only struggled early on, but also put in inconsistent performances. Because, again, several of the actors come across great in some scenes and then terrible in others. And, of course, some of this could be on the directing, some of this could be on the behind-the-scenes stuff. Moving on. So, right at the end here, uh, <laughs> the Nidarian has shown up, you know, the, the other jellyfish thing, and uh, Q has an interesting line, I'm trying to assist a pitiful species, and even throws a bone to Riker. Now, obviously, that's done, and this is something we do know was done deliberately. This is to establish, I believe, Q-less, where he tries to offer Riker the power of the Q. Um, but I mention this because it's once again kind of indicating, especially in-universe, that Q is already kind of advocating for us, that he actually has become invested in humanity or in Picard or something, and he kind of wants to see us win. He wants us to, to push back and make this work. He's willing to challenge us. He's willing to to put barriers in our way. But he does this because he wants to see it and overcome it. To use a slightly different analogy, it's like you're looking down. It's Q's looking down at a bunch of rats in a maze. And every now and again he puts down a barrier in their way so they can't go through that route. But he doesn't do it so they can't get through. He does it to see how they surpass that difficulty. How they bypass it. How they triumph, or, or you, you, know what, you know what I mean, right? He's doing it to test them, basically. And the novel, the, the Q Continuum Trilogy, goes into this in more detail, which I highly recommend, by the way. Great, great book. So, um, moving on. So, Picard has a line, to the bitter end. Uh, or, excuse me, Riker has a line, to the bitter end, and Picard says, no, I don't see anything bitter about that. I kind of like that. It, it pulls that idealism in without getting preachy. It's probably one of the few lines in the whole episode that really makes me feel that way. And it feels like a Fontana line, if I could be so bold. Then, uh... Then the mystery is concluded. And I've been kind of hinting at this this whole time. But this is where the episode just crumbles, in my opinion. So, first, let me talk about how weird Q acts towards the end. He gets weirdly desperate. He starts actively being like, he'll do whatever I want. No, you should fight. You should, you should just go kill them. It's, it's, they're aliens. They're different. It's, blah, 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 you know. From an in-character perspective, that could make sense as he's run out of ideas. You know, he's, he, they've solved the problem. They've solved the riddle. They have succeeded at the test. Now he's just trying to, to push back against that, try to sow some, you know, confusion or uncertainty and failing at it. But, Again, all of that was probably not intended. What we're seeing is a desperate man who's basically a villain who is now losing. And again, it comes across as very Trelane. Just really out of character overall. But let's talk about the mystery of the episode. If you can call it that. This is, in my opinion, without question, the weakest part of Encounter at Farpoint. This is why I don't even need my notes for this. I could have told you this four years ago. Um, I could have told you this eight years ago, ten years ago, seventeen years ago. The actual mystery of the of the station and, and the, the... What are they freaking called? I wrote down their name. I just referenced it. The, the Nidarians is so flimsy that even as a kid, I could pick up on this stuff. I feel like I'm being treated like I'm five. And I don't like being treated like I'm five. Maybe eight. Just a little bit better. You know? I, this is such an obvious mystery. And it's the main plot. 
It is the primary plot thread of the episode. Although some would argue the cube plot is primary, and I would argue that as well. But obviously it was the original intended plot was all going to be about solving this mystery. But this isn't a mystery. Okay, so we've got a people who live in dirt and stone huts, but they also have this super advanced station which can make things appear out of freaking nowhere. They are evasive about every question. Oh, and another ship shows up and starts deliberately attacking the bandy while completely ignoring the ship. Gee! <laughs> I wonder if something's going on. Oh, also, our resident psychic is also detecting loneliness, pain, etc., etc. Now, I know the episode had to be stretched, but this is such a basic level mystery. I'm not even sure it could be salvaged while still keeping it a mystery. The only way I could see this being salvaged from a writer's perspective is during the conclusion, having them turn to Q and saying, this is it. Remember, they they hyped this up. Picard has a line dictated. It's one of the first bits of dialogue. It's going to be a difficult mission. And then Q says, you'll have challenges you can't even imagine when it comes to the Farpoint. They hype up this whole Farpoint encounter. It would have been... The only way you could salvage this, my opinion, is to have them in-universe say, this is a joke. This is so obvious. You found them. You found one of those things. Captured it. Used it for this because you wanted to have some kind of actual connection with us or some kind of outside influence. Okay, I'm with that. And now we found you out. The end. This this is your test, Q? Of course we help these people. And, in fact, if I could be so bold, one of my favorite little sections is where Q's like, you're not so evolved, you're not helping them. And, and Picard just taps to Crusher. He's like, hey, Crusher, are you already helping them? And Crusher's like, yeah, of course I am. <laughs> I like that bit. Anyways. But, yeah, no, I, I, I would have... It, it's just... This this is the big thing. This is your big shtick. This feels like science fiction from the 60s. And that's kind of my point. I know I'm not the first person to voice this, or even the 15th, but I feel like several of the really early Season 1 TNG stuff, most notably the first couple of episodes, they went into it to make an original series episode and didn't really acknowledge the 20 years of, or however long it had been, of, of advancement in fiction in general, let alone in science fiction in particular. We've moved forward in, in terms of what we can do in our stories. And Star Trek didn't. At least, not early on. I am finally out of stuff to talk about. Let me, let me just, I want to see here. Oh my god, it's almost two hours. Wow, I've been sitting here talking for two hours. No wonder I feel so dizzy. <laughs> I'm going to get some lunch after this. I do hope you've enjoyed my first look at Star Trek The Next Generation. And I really hope you'll see me again next week.